Today's video is brought to you by Babbel. Now, as someone who basically failed every English class in school, but somehow ended up doing video essays, I can attest to the fact that learning things in the traditional way may not be the best for everyone. And when it comes to learning things like a second language, I feel the same way. Antes de YouTube, durante de los años de universidad, trabajaba en un restaurante donde todos los cocineros allí solo hablaron español con un poco de inglés. Tomé varias clases de español en escuela, pero siento que aprendí más en mi trabajo porque usaba lo en realidad. There's something to be said about learning things in a real and practical way, and that's why Babbel is so effective as a language learning app. They actually get you speaking from the very beginning, and they cater their lessons to real-life situations, not just mindless testing. While I'm sure many of you would probably like to reap the benefits of learning a second language, I know many people still view learning a second language as an expensive and time-consuming task. But in reality, with Babbel, it's been shown through various efficacy studies that as little as 15 hours in their app has been equivalent to a full college semester. And considering that the average person spends about 4.8 hours a day on their phone, there's really no reason to think that learning a new language is out of reach anymore. So instead of trying to take on any kind of student loan or debt to learn a language, how about I instead give you a link in the description of this video to get up to 65% off your Babbel subscription. And to take the risk out of this, just know that Babbel stands by their 20-day money-back guarantee in case you decide it's not right for you. So gracias otra vez to Babbel for making this video possible. Special segment tonight, the new payola, a sour note that is tainting the rock music business once again. It was back in the 1950s that payola became a way of life in this industry. Record companies and promoters paying off disc jockeys to plug new releases and to boost sales. Today, the practice appears to be back with a group of independent promoters playing a major role. And federal authorities are investigating a possible mafia connection. Mafia connection. Just how important the rock music business is to the Mafia became clear last month at this New York City hotel. Guided by a federal grand jury in Newark on racketeering and extortion charges, accused of using violence to get their way in the gambling business, the narcotics business, and the music business. association with Mr. Reagan that Frank Sinatra was asked about yesterday. Tell the same story Cox does about payoffs of cash, cars, expensive watches, drugs, and nights with women. experience is over. The acid rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. The death of another rock musician was disclosed today. Jim Morrison, 27 years old, lead singer of The Doors. His manager said Morrison died six days ago in Paris, either of a heart attack or pneumonia. But the death was kept secret to avoid a sensation. 
Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of the enormously popular rock band Nirvana, is dead at the age of 27. More now from NBC's Brian Williams. The international music industry is in shock with the death of rock star Michael Hutchins. The body of the in excess lead singer was discovered in a Sydney hotel room late this morning. The Hollywood coroner says an overdose of narcotics is responsible for the death of the well-known rock singer Janis Joplin. Miss Joplin was found dead in her bedroom last night. Exactly what happened inside the iconic Beverly Hilton remains a mystery. Paramedics raced to the fourth floor and found a lifeless Whitney Houston inside her hotel room bathtub. Both the Los Angeles Times and CBS News are both now reporting that Michael Jackson has died. I don't think many people at first glance would regard being a popular musician to be particularly deadly, but looking at the data, we see something rather peculiar. According to a study conducted by the University of Sydney, which sampled 13,000 different artists across seven decades, it was noted that a popular musician's life expectancy was up to 25 years shorter comparable to the general population. Furthermore, accidental death rates were between 5 and 10 times greater, suicide rates were between 2 and 7 times greater, and homicide rates were up to 8 times greater. The study suggests an average life expectancy for musicians that are male to be in the late 50s and women in the early 60s. At first glance, these numbers are hard to contextualize, so let me give you something to compare it to. This is the same life expectancy you'd expect to see for a police officer in Buffalo, which has been labeled the most dangerous city in New York. Or if we're talking about the 90s, a male musician has a shorter life expectancy than a coal miner in China in the 1980s. These numbers make it clear as day that the true price of fame in the music industry is up to 25 years off your life. But that's not to say that fame is this deadly across the board. In another study that sampled a thousand different notable people from 2009 to 2011 from all professions, they found that those notable for their work in business, politics, or military generally lived longer than the national average. While writers, performers, and other creative types were only noted to have their lives shortened by a year. So what is going on with the music industry in particular? While we've established that the music industry is particularly deadly, the vast majority of the literature on the phenomena seems to isolate this to just one or two things, such as the added stresses from fame or the ease of access to substance, or that creative types tend to be more predisposed to mental illness. While there's no denying that these factors definitely play a role in this phenomena, perhaps there's a bit more to this story. While much of the formal research on this topic scrutinizes what is wrong with the artists as an individual, perhaps it's better in this case to focus on what is going on within the industry as a whole. Because if you shift focus away from the individual to the industry, and you pause for a moment to think about the financial incentives of the music world, you'll notice something incredibly concerning. Music is one of the few industries on the planet where someone's work is worth significantly more to a company after their passing. Generations are remembered by the art that they leave behind, and the easiest way to be remembered is to be hailed as a legend from that time period. A premature death can take an artist from a good artist to a legend, 
which can in some cases solidify an artist's recording catalog to be a cash cow for decades to come. Think about this for a moment. When an artist signs his name on the dotted line to a record company, the record company will in many cases own all of the masters for the songs recorded under that contract. And when an artist signs to a major label, it's safe to say that their death is in many ways factored into the initial investment. And in many ways, after an artist has peaked in popularity, there becomes an awkward point in their career where the artist is worth more to them dead than alive. him due to the business that he did yeah they were they, and i can't even say mad is that they didn't have a part of it let's be real I, I'm, I'm i'm gonna say it out there straight for everybody listening my uncle didn't die he was murdered i feel the same thing about prince we're losing a lot of stars because you have to remember these are basically insurance policies when he dies Whatever was owned by the company reverts back. We're not talking about $100,000. We're not talking about a million dollars. We're talking about billions of dollars. Notice that when my uncle dies, why do you hear all his music? Why is there a Motown cartoon out now? Okay, well, obviously when my uncle was alive, he wasn't given the rights to anybody. But when he dies, all of a sudden, pretty incredible to me that all of us have kind of heard this anecdote about musicians dying at a young age, but every time this happens, nobody casts an ounce of skepticism about this kind of thing, or how much these people are worth dead. That in my opinion is the true dark side of the music industry, and it seriously does not help that social media in the modern day has made artists' deaths even more lucrative. As one Nielsen executive had stated in 2016, if Earth, Wind & Fire's Maurice White passed away 10 years ago, you might have read about it in a paper and then waited until there was a store open, he said. Now the news cycle travels extremely fast, and you get more awareness. The instant gratification is there. You can buy it or stream it, and it magnifies the consumption. Now, instant gratification is definitely an interesting word choice from this Nielsen executive, especially considering some of his other comments in the same article. This was different from other years, Dave Bakula, Nielsen's senior vice president of Industry Insights, told The Post. The news cycle is very viral. I've never seen a year like this before. The number of big-name artists passing away. The music industry is getting an extra boost from the celebration, he added. Notice that the author of the article here had to add this for context. But obviously, I am nitpicking a bit. All of you probably know what this executive is talking about. Whenever an artist passes away, everyone comes out to show their respects on social media, and this effect has an uncanny ability to run up sales numbers. While in recent history it's been labeled the Prince Effect, we have known for quite some time that an artist's passing can be lucrative. But just how lucrative it is, we are just now getting to measure the effects more closely in the modern day. One paper titled Music, Death, and Profits lays this all out for us. Notably, this was the first study of its kind to show the long-term effects of this phenomenon. In their study that monitored 81 artists who passed away from 2015 to 2017, they found something pretty disturbing. 
Our findings show that a rate of sales does not return to pre-death levels, but instead is in most instances persistently higher even several years after the death shock occurs. Album sales leapt a staggering 226% on average, just on the day the artist died, and they doubled overall on average for the first 100 days. For bigger artists like Prince, the effect was even more pronounced, as he saw a 16,000% increase, while other large artists saw very staggering numbers as well. Furthermore, looking at the album sales for other rappers who have died young, we see that almost all of them see commercial success they never saw in their own lifetime. As if the financial incentives weren't already way too far in the wrong direction, this actually gets a hell of a lot worse. Because there's a clause in record contracts that allows record labels to cash in even more after an artist's passing. This has been going on since the early days of the music industry, and it's quite literally a standard practice. It's called the death clause, or the non-performance clause. Now, this is one of those lesser-known details in regards to record contracts, but the former manager of The Grateful Dead, Hank Harrison, wrote about this some years back. Essentially, it goes something like this. Company shall have the right to secure insurance equivalent to 10 times the estimated value of the artist's earnings from any source of revenue for company's sole benefit. Company shall be allowed to employ any insurance carrier or combination of the same to assure this benefit and need not consult or require signature compliance from the artist. Company shall keep such information confidential, except that the company may disclose information to the applicable insurance carriers or as required by law. Artist or artist's estate shall have no right to review or claim the benefit of any such policy obtained by the company. And to quote what Hank Harrison later wrote in this article, he states, In short, here is what a death clause does in my humble opinion. If an artist fails to perform or pay back advances, the artist becomes more profitable dead. Today, the hit clause still exists, but it is more subtle, and whereas it used to be worth thousands, it's now potentially worth billions. Labels invest millions in new talent and the insurance policy is a protection against loss or a way of collecting projected profits for music, t-shirts, books, foreign rights, and everything else in all forms. Now, I want to clarify one thing here about the death clause. And it's that this type of life insurance, also known as key man insurance, is actually a standard practice in other industries as well. And depending on how you look at this, it's honestly just a smart business move given how much money they invested into them in the first place. But normally when an employee dies in other industries, there is a pretty significant loss of revenue. And this insurance is designed to make it so the company can stay afloat until they find a replacement. But in the music industry, this is just them double dipping. Now, in case you're unfamiliar, record deals are structured like a loan, also known as an advance. A certain amount the artist gets to keep for living expenses, and the rest will usually get poured into the cost of making an album as well as marketing it. While the specifics will vary from deal to deal, the premise is pretty much the same across the board. Only after the label is paid back in full will the artist receive any royalties on the music recorded during that time. And assuming all goes well with the contract, the process will repeat with a new contract and new debt. If they don't succeed though, or paying back the label is taking too long, or the artist is trying to get out of the deal, then the death clause conveniently helps the label collect. What's more, as bad of a reputation as record labels may have, they aren't the only ones with perverse incentives. 
The artist also has to consider that his own loved ones might be out to get him as well, presuming any family members may be included in their will. And if that wasn't bad enough, it has become a far more common practice for artists nowadays to sell parts of their recording catalog on brokerage sites like Royalty Exchange. And I'm just going to flat out say this right now, it's only a matter of time before something bad happens with one of these Royalty Exchange platforms. As one article from MarketWatch stated, Buy some of the rights to a rock star's music and you're likely to see a big bump in your royalties if he or she dies suddenly. It creates some awkward incentives. Don't be surprised if this turns up as the plot to a Hollywood thriller sometime soon. So yeah, nowadays basically an artist has to worry about literally anyone and everyone potentially having a price on their head. Now that you're aware of what a death clause is, I think it's important that I give you a textbook example of this so you can see how this usually plays out. And just know for now, while we will discuss many other mysterious deaths in the music industry later on in this video, for now I'd like to draw your attention to the story of Bobby Fuller. After Fuller moved to LA in 1964, he was signed to a record label by the name of Delphi Records, owned by producer Bob Keane. Keen was also the band's manager, and given the fact that it was called the Bobby Fuller Four, Bobby was the frontman. Shortly after the band had scored several hits, like their cover of I Fought the Law, on July 18, 1966, Bobby's success in the music industry would be cut short. After receiving a mysterious phone call in the early hours of the morning, Bobby was believed to have left his Los Angeles apartment at 3 a.m., Before Bobby left, his road manager had been half asleep watching TV in the living room. He vaguely remembered that Bobby might have been going to see a girl named Melody that night. After heading out from the apartment, he took his mother's Oldsmobile and he would set off into the night. As the day turned to morning, Bobby failed to meet up with the other members of his band for rehearsal later that day. Around 5 p.m., a couple other visiting musicians had come to see Bobby at his apartment. They claimed that when they were driving up, Bobby's mother's car was not there. Bobby's mother, Lorraine, also noted this. She had been keeping an eye out all day for Bobby to come home. After the two visitors came into Bobby's apartment, Bobby's mom then went to go get the mail. To her surprise, the car was there. Upon closer inspection, she found Bobby lifeless inside of the car. He was found lying across the seat, where the entire car reeked of the smell of gasoline. There was a 2.5-gallon gas can found below the driver's seat, and a gas hose was also found nearby. Upon discovering Bobby in this state, Lorraine called the police. And when they arrived, they took a quick look at the body, and they ruled that Bobby had taken his own life from drinking gasoline. The authorities quickly discarded the gas can and called it a day. The car was never dusted for prints, the police didn't interview anybody, and all in all, it was an open and shut case. Later, it would be revealed through the autopsy that there was no gasoline found in Bobby's stomach, where the coroner later stated that Bobby had died due to inhalation of gasoline fumes, classifying Bobby's death instead as an accident, a finding that nobody, not least his own mother and family, agreed. 
Multiple witnesses noted that it appeared that Bobby had been beaten up badly and had a broken finger. There was blood found on his shirt and face. Multiple witnesses, including Lorraine, also made the comment that it looked like he had been dragged on the ground, and his body showed various scrapes and injuries. The coroner claims that they were mistaken. He claimed he found no bruises, no broken bones, and no cuts, or evidence of a beating. Instead stating, body in full rigor, skin slip due to high temperature in car. Bobby's body had been found in a full state of rigor mortis, meaning that he had been dead for some time. Considering that the car hadn't been in the lot for more than 15 minutes, this quite literally made it impossible that he could have driven up on his own. Given the sheer amount of gasoline found in the car, it appeared that someone had been just moments away from setting it ablaze. According to an article from Spin Magazine, in 1983, Rick Stone reported that he was sure Bobby's head had been doused with gasoline. To this day, Jim Reese maintains that he saw a half-burned book of matches and a burn on the vinyl of the backseat of the car. Assuming the car failed to light, this meant that the persons responsible were lurking nearby. Rather interesting when you factor in that Bob Keane just so happened to magically appear at the scene within moments. Now, Bobby's story is essentially a cautionary tale of what can happen in the music industry. And to quote Rod Crosby, the lead singer for the band The Intruders, Bobby Fuller was vulnerable by virtue of his honesty and naivety. If he had been a streetwise, bitter person, maybe he would have survived. He lived on a high plane of idealism and fantasy. He was swept into the maelstrom of rock decadence and was a victim of a ruthless business. Essentially, Bobby had become worth more dead than alive behind the scenes. He had a life insurance policy taken out on him for about $850,000, while all of the other members of the band had policies at around $100,000 each. In the days before his death, the band was on the verge of breaking up. One member was getting ready to return to his family after touring. Another member was likely to have been drafted into Vietnam. Infighting was rampant, leading to Bobby replacing one of the members, and the two musicians from earlier were new potential replacements for his current band. Essentially, Bobby Fuller had had enough of his management. Between them failing to fulfill orders for his recent single, and the fact that Bob Keane had been micromanaging their sound, often making artistic decisions, which led to their worst financial failure, the Magic Touch, which in spite of heavy promotion through Paola, it still was not a commercial success. But that wasn't the only financial problem going on behind the scenes. The label had wanted Bobby to continue touring. He decided to bail on that. Had Bobby walked away, the label would have presumably incurred a large financial loss between the recent failure of the Magic Touch and the tour that was cut short. But if he were to conveniently die in an accident, let's say a mysterious car fire, then the label could easily turn a profit. Had the coroner ruled it being self-inflicted, the label would not have been able to collect due to a common clause in life insurance policies. Then in the months after, the coroner switched the death ruling to an accident. Conveniently, this was the most lucrative outcome for the label. Now clearly there was something off about the way the police and the coroner handled this case. I should add that the police have never once refuted the timeline of events I've shared with you. But if you are a frequent viewer of this channel, you know that all too often when you see this type of behavior from officials, it's usually a pretty big hint that you're dealing with matters pertaining to organized crime. Additionally, in Bobby's case, when two private investigators were hired to look into his death, both of them quickly quit the case. 
Both refused to talk to the press, and one had claimed that they had been threatened. In the days after Fuller's death, three mysterious tough guy types showed up outside the apartment of another band member, Jim Reese. They had essentially broken into his apartment only to find that he wasn't there. Jim to this day swore he had no idea who they were, but it definitely concerned members of the group to the point that they were thinking that they could have been next. smoke there's usually fire so were there any ties to organized crime many sources on this subject bring up the silent partner in bob Keane's business a man by the name of larry noons larry noons was essentially the man financing fuller's career and noons was the actual beneficiary who was sent to cash in on fuller's death now the key word here is silent partner Organized crime is notorious for using frontmen for almost all of their business dealings, and to quote the Chicago Tribune, as the schemes got more complicated, mobsters needed the help of lawyers, politicians, and frontmen with relatively clean criminal records. It was a Faustian bargain. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term Faustian bargain, it essentially means a deal with the devil. Throughout history, there have been a number of Faustian bargains, but in present day, you'll notice that almost every person who claims this comes from the entertainment industry. You're still out here doing these songs, you know, you're still on tour. I do, but I don't take it for granted. Why do you still do it? Why are you still out here? Well, it goes back to the destiny thing. I, mean, I made a bargain with it, you know, a long time ago, and I'm holding up my hand. What was your bargain? To get where um, I am now. Sh should I ask who you made the bargain with? <laughs> with, 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 you know, with the chief, uh, chief commander. On this earth? <laughs> and on this earth and, in, uh, and then in a world we can't see. Now, I should also let you know that Bob Dylan has quite literally been playing a never-ending tour since 1988. Adhering to a heavy booking schedule of 100 shows a year, he crossed 3,000 shows in 2019. And despite him being 80 years old, his vocal performances becoming unpredictable, and him randomly changing the lyrics of his songs on a night-by-night -night basis to the point that they become unrecognizable, he's still touring. It sort of makes you wonder if there's something preventing him from retiring especially given the fact that the overarching data on this industry shows that most musicians don't live to the age of retirement. But to be fair, perhaps he just really likes playing shows still, or perhaps he was saying this for publicity. And to be clear, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. There's definitely a lot of interpretations for this deal with the devil analogy, but all you need to know for now is the fact that at least one of these interpretations includes making a deal with the underworld. And going into this next section, I want to say that we will tie up the stories with Bob Keane and Larry Noons and Bobby Fuller here in a bit. But for you to really see how the death clause fits into things, you need to understand the entanglements between organized crime and the music business. So we're going to explore a few of those, because Fuller's case is far from an isolated incident. Tonight, the first of five Segment 3 reports on what we have chosen to call Crime Rock. There's a lot of corruption in the mu music business because there's a lot of money in the music business, in records, cassettes, and in live performances. 
That kind of money attracts all kinds of unsavory characters who don't know much about music, but do know a lot about crime. Brian Ross reports. Police say much of the trouble for Rare Earth came from this man, Joe Ulo, a reputed mob enforcer from New York who moved to California a few years ago and moved into the rock music business. One of his first targets was Rare Earth. In 1969, Rare Earth was on top. Its first album, a double platinum record, selling more than two million copies. The good times, the hit albums, and the big money only lasted for three years. And then, Rare Earth began having trouble paying its bills and traveling expenses. Police say that's when Ulo and the mob moved in. When a band or a management company band run into trouble, financially, that's when they come in. And they are heavies. And they'll promise you anything in the world and say that uh, we'll give you whatever you need, we believe in you, and blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, they have to have a percentage of the business. And I'm talking about loan sharking and all the way down the line. By 1976, Ulo was boasting to his associates that he had taken over a hidden interest in the rock group Rare Earth by providing mob money and mob muscle to take care of Rare Earth's debts. But the mob's backing did little to help the group's music. Rare Earth's records didn't sell well. And the group that had once made millions was almost out of business. Peter Orlbeck, the group's drummer, says he was getting visits at home from strangers who wanted to know if he was hiding any of the group's money. You see, we were six guys that were creating lots of money in which lots of people were enjoying. And we were a motor. And all of a sudden, the motor stopped running. And when a motor stopped running, it started affecting a lot of people. So you don't know what's going to happen. Joe Ulo was arrested last year for the of former basketball star Jack Molinas. And police say members of Rare Earth are lucky no one got hurt. It was a different story for the Three Dog Night. And police also are investigating Ulo's relationship with this rock group. The accountant for the group was shot in the arm and paralyzed in what police believe was a mob dispute over control of Three Dog Night. The group has since broken up and police are still investigating the the members of Rare Earth say what happened to them could happen to any rock group trying to make it big in the rock music world. Anybody that makes a lot of money, they're susceptible to being come on to by certain people if they run into money problems and if they're not smart enough to handle it all. And that kind of thing can shut down a group? Oh, instantly. Instantly. Because then the group, if a group becomes paranoid of their safety in any way, shape or form, you can't go to write a song. I mean, it's you have to have total relaxation and feel good about yourself in order to write good material that uh, people accept. I mean, it comes through in the music. You can see it, you can feel it, and you can sense it. This example with Rare Earth is probably one of the most common hidden arrangements. Art is known for drawing in people with an interest in money laundering, and given how risky it is to invest in musicians, Many narcotics traffickers use artists as a way to launder dirty money, and if the musician succeeds, then that's an added bonus, which can be used to make even more money if they're able to go on tour. In Rare Earth's case, it was more notably an example of loan sharking, but there's honestly no shortage of examples I can give you from history. There are a lot of bands that were made off drug money. For example, the largest manufacturer of a substance that starts with L and ends in SD was the financier behind the band The Grateful Dead. Had it not been for him, they largely would have never succeeded. In the present day, many DJs are just fronts for selling narcotics. And you'll often see that rap groups are often fronts for illegal activity. But that's not to say that gangsterism is exclusive to rap in any capacity. 
Frank Sinatra, for example, was known to have been a mob-connected musician, one of the most successful, largely due to his mob ties. While never prosecuted because they could never build a case against him, he was known to have been close with many famous mobsters like Sam Giancana, the legendary mob boss of the Chicago outfit for a time, as well as reputed mob boss Lucky Luciano, the first mob boss of what would later become the Genovese crime family. When Sinatra first started in the music business, he had rose to prominence singing in Tommy Dorsey's band. After his notoriety outlived the band's usefulness, Sinatra was stuck in his contract with Dorsey. The story allegedly goes that Sinatra's management offered $60,000 at first to get him out of that contract, but when Dorsey refused, Sinatra turned to his godfather, Willie Moretti, the New Jersey underboss of the Genovese crime family. Rumor has it he threatened him, and curiously, Dorsey let him out of that contract shortly after for one dollar. You see, Sinatra had to be watched closely by the powers that be. He had political influence, wealth, and close business dealings with very powerful people. This is why you'll notably see a lot of references to Sinatra in rap music. But this arrangement isn't just found in the American music industry either. In research pertaining to cartels in Mexico, music management is listed as a risk-tolerant method of money laundering. And on top of that, to quote this paper, it is unclear whether the music groups participated willingly or under duress in this scheme. In one version of events, groups were targeted by the organization that forced them to participate in addition to paying extortion quotas. However, an anonymous music industry expert revealed that some groups that had yet to become popular accepted organization money in exchange for producing records and writing songs that praised the organization. Once the music groups became popular, they could participate in the scheme because they could go on tour. In this sense, the organization would invest in lesser-known groups in the hopes that the songs would become popular and allow them to go on tour. This arrangement was unstable, according to the music industry expert, because once a group becomes famous and no longer needs the capital from an organization, it may seek to pursue an independent music career. However, if a group or any members of the group tried to sever ties with the DTL, they were often executed. Our segment three this evening, part two in a series of five on crime in the rock music business, or how in some cities they might but don't advertise a rock concert brought to you under the auspices of a band of hoodlums. There is so much money in it so many guitar players becoming millionaires in their 20s, gangsters have seen an opportunity and moved in, as reported now by Brian Ross. This is Jerry Michelson, a rock concert promoter in Chicago. By the way, you ready for this? This is Arnie Granite, Michelson's partner. Most of Manchester just canceled a whole tour. As rock promoters, they expect yeah. problems. Uh, Last-minute cancellations, managers, agents, temperamental rock groups. For the marquee tomorrow night, we cannot fit fabulous poodles across the marquee. But what they never expected was trouble from the mob, and that they would have to turn down concerts because of the people involved. And in the summer of 1977, Michelson and Granite turned down an offer to be part of promoting three of the biggest rock concerts ever held in Chicago. This is Soldier Field, and the three big concerts held here were called the Super Bowl of Rock estimated ticket sales of well over two million dollars and the biggest names in rock music appearing a federal grand jury is now investigating allegations that the mob ran these concerts suspected of bribing city officials to get an exclusive on concerts in soldier field 
booking rock groups through frontmen, and driving up the price of concert tickets, all part of a huge mob scheme to make big money in the rock concert business. One of the men under federal investigation is Victor Comforti, last photographed 20 years ago when he appeared before the McClellan Senate Rackets Committee. Comforti works out of this heating and air conditioning company on Chicago's west side. A number of rock concert promoters from around the country are believed to be close to Comforti, and federal investigators say this garage has become an important meeting place in the rock concert business. Terry Bruner of the Chicago Better Government Association investigated the concerts. He says Comforti was the godfather of the Soldier Field concerts. He goes way back in the, the history of, uh, of organized crime in Chicago. And I think that uh, it's pretty clear that he was the, the person who was the go-between between the rock promoters and the city officials who were concerned. If you talk to enough people in the entertainment business or the rock business, they're going to tell you that this kind of thing goes on all over the country and that they know ahead of time, uh, we're not even going to bother with Chicago, there's too much hassle, as they say. And I think that's a code word for you've got to pay off. And I think that uh, it's pretty clear that these people had to pay off in the city of Chicago. One of the people who says he was a victim of the mob scheme at Soldier Field in Chicago is rock superstar Ted Nugent. Police estimates based on aerial photographs of the crowd at Soldier Field were that as many as 90,000 people were in the stands. But the promoters told Nugent there were only 56,000. And Nugent says he was cheated out of more than $100,000 in his percentage of the ticket sales. You lost a lot of money there, didn't you? Well. Again, you know, it's hard for me to walk away from a gig making a quarter of a million dollars and realize that I lost money. Uh, but yes, the people paid to see Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent should get his money. You consider yourself an honest businessman? Oh, totally. Do you, though? Yes. yes. Has that hurt you in this industry? Uh, I would say so. I would say that it's definitely hurt us being honest and operating in an honest way. It is difficult. Over the years, there's been times when it's been difficult. We've had to make hard decisions like that. Not to make a payoff, not to skim, not to cheat. Yeah, those decisions have had to be made. There's been easy money out there at times. There was ours for the taking. In this hall in Nebraska, it is still possible to put on a rock concert without the mob. But in Chicago, and in a number of cities in this country, Promoters, managers, and rock stars have to go along with a lot to put on a rock concert. Now, this type of criminal entanglement, just like many others going forward, you're going to notice a trend. There are examples of corruption from the very beginning, and there are also examples of circumstances in the modern day. For example, many nightclubs and many concert venues are just fronts to launder dirty money as well. There's no shortage of articles that you can find nowadays about venues getting busted. But this goes far deeper than that, so let's start with Coachella. One of the largest, most famous, and one of the most profitable music festivals in the United States and the world. That was started by one of the biggest traffickers of The Devil's Lettuce in California, Gary Tovar. His promotion front was called Golden Voice Productions and he would take losses on paper but launder his money through the promotion business, and the shows would give him a cover to also sell more product. Now, there's something very interesting that happens when a venue becomes a front for illegal money, assuming the management doesn't skim from the artist, and there's some actual honest business going on, relatively speaking, the bands actually get paid very well. To quote an article from OC Weekly, 
the singer of TSOL, Jack Grissom, explained, When he started paying us more than anyone else in the country would pay us, I mean, it pissed people off. Gary really started paying these bands what they were worth. We'd play a show, and the show would be packed, and a band would get 100 or 200 bucks. Gary was the first punk promoter who actually paid what they deserved. Well, if we all got what we deserved, we'd all be in jail, but it was unlike any other promoter. Everyone wanted to be on Gary's shows, and it only was a short time before he was the biggest promoter around. Now, I can only speak for what is available online, and there's actually a lot of positive stuff said about this guy. Like, he helped a bunch of bands get started, he would fly them out, he took a lot of losses, he was very generous as well. In fact, even when the feds busted him in 1991, a bunch of the groups that he had promoted early shows for would go on to thank him by doing a banquet to raise money for his legal fees. And he was known for promoting a bunch of bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, Nirvana, and some of their earliest shows all before they were widely known. Now obviously the business wasn't going as good while he was in prison, but in 1998 he was released, and a year later they would go on to launch Coachella as this one big music festival. While Tovar was no longer the owner, he did join back as a consultant, as he had previously signed over ownership to his employees. Because Tovar was relatively generous with his front business, unlike many others in this industry, it inevitably led to Coachella becoming a success. Now, this one is a surprisingly positive one, given that the industry's history reads like a hall of rogues. But in reality, I had to restore your faith in humanity for a bit just to talk about this next character. Because when it comes to the shady business of music venues and nightclubs being used as fronts for illegal activity, this goes back to the emergence of organized crime in America. In the 1920s, the outlawing of alcohol led to speakeasies where organized crime figures like Al Capone needed a constant supply of talent to keep the drinks and illicit gambling going. This created a need for someone to manage these performers and book them each night, as well as orchestrate them getting to the underground operations. This led to the creation of a company by the name of Music Corporation of America. The guy who founded it was named Julius Caesar Stein. He was already a doctor with a great income, but prohibition had made it so that this job opportunity was more lucrative than his current one. Seemingly via the use of the Chicago outfit, they managed to extort, cheat, lie, and corrupt their way to the top to the point that this talent agency had effectively retained a monopoly on all of Hollywood and show business. Their rise to power is straight out of the mafia playbook. And I want you to think about this for a moment. A business with absolutely no barriers to entry, being a booking agent, Yet they'd consolidated power so much that they'd gained the nickname the Octopus because they had their reaches into everything in show business and they had to be broken apart by antitrust. The full extent of the mafia relations to MCA to this day is not known. Additionally, the circumstances that led it to becoming what we know now as Universal Music Group were highly questionable, with an active mafia probe into the company going on in 1989 only for the investigation to get shut down by the highest ranks of government, with the prosecutor being completely defanged of his position for trying to pursue this case. Now, we will discuss this further, but for now, let's get back to the early days of Jules Stein. This man is essentially the father of what we know as the music business today. You, 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 you struggle to get the contract, and then the contract is sort of, you know, the indentured servitude type of thing. We, our first contract was seven albums essentially 14 years. So I signed that contract when I was 23. That's crazy. Okay, so I'm signing, at 23 years old, I'm signing a contract that's supposed to take me into 37. 
you're signing a contract for more than half your life. And, and if you look at the shelf life of most artists, it's four to... So they're basically anticipating your entire arc. That's so crazy. So you don't have any leverage, you know, other than that they want to sign you. You sign the deal, and then it becomes this weird dance of like, can I sustain success? Yeah. If you get success and you have leverage, they'll get out of your way because you're making them a lot of money. But the minute you're not making them as much money, then they step in and they start playing these Jedi mind tricks on you. We know what to do. You know, the public's going to forget about you. I mean, I've heard all these things like, you know, this kind of weird like, yeah, you're in the room, but, you know, we're the arbiter of whether you can stay in the room. That's the weird position that record companies had for a long time that they don't seem to have anymore. I would I would argue against that because they, they still do. Well, they've moved to a different set of circumstances, and I'm not as conversant as I, as I once was. But one thing they do with certain younger artists, but I think particularly more in the pop realm, is they do these 360 deals where it's like right. if you get a perfume deal, if you yeah. like your whole world, they we, own you. We own a piece of your whole world. And fame is such a great quotient in American life now that you can see where kids would trade fame and give and be willing to give away like the, the, the profit part. Well, they'll take a risk at the long-term ownership. Right. So let me jump in there. So if you actually survive the cut, let's say, let's call it phase one, you're successful, you're a name, and now you're in a place to either renegotiate or your deal is up or whatever. I once had a conversation with a very powerful music executive and I said, and I was friends with the guy, so I was like, give me the insider psychology here. Now that I know the game that you run, what do you tell people like me when they get here? And he says, oh, it's just, there's always a price. So they know that even if you get through the matrix of the whole thing and get out the other side, that there's just a dollar amount that will buy you back in. Whoa. They're not worried that you'll go independent. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the machinations of the music business over the last 20 years, especially with the rise of the internet, it's to keep people in the system. Yes. They don't want true independence. It goes without saying that once enough power is consolidated in any industry by limiting competition, the workers in that industry will flock there because that's where the majority of the opportunity is. Taking a look at history, a perfect storm of events enabled Julius Caesar Stein to have a near monopoly on managing talent in the music, film, and radio business. For one, prohibition made illegal business incredibly lucrative. The second of which was the Great Depression, which in turn shifted bureaucratic focus onto other issues. Now, as you can imagine, having the backing of the Chicago outfit made limiting competition in Chicago incredibly easy. It goes without saying that if you did business with a rival gang, the outfit was likely to not be forgiving. Furthermore, clubs that refused exclusive deals with Stein were often targeted to be put out of business. In one particularly humorous example, he hired a mobster to launch a stink bomb during another set of another agency. But what further allowed Stein to expand his exclusivity network was the founding of the commission within the American Mafia. Essentially, after a large amount of bloodshed and infighting for power within the Mafia, Lucky Luciano ultimately ended up on top of the underworld around 1931. Luciano was incredibly intelligent, and he knew that taking on the role of boss of all bosses would likely lead to a shorter career. So he instead attempted to solidify the power structure within the Mafia by creating a board of directors to mediate disputes within families. The commission consisted of seven family bosses originally, and after Capone went to prison for tax evasion, Frank Nitti would replace that role for the Chicago outfit within months. 
This in theory should have given Jules Stein a new network of connections through this newly formed alliance, allowing him to extend his exclusivity far beyond Chicago. On top of all of that, as a result of Al Capone going to prison for tax evasion, this meant that the US government was now willing to tax illegal income, and thus stressed a greater importance in working with front businesses. Jules Stein was at the right place at the right time. To quote the book Dark Victory, Ronald Reagan, MCA and the Mob by the author Dan Moldea, which on a side note is a very good book and I highly recommend that you go read it. Whether you like or dislike Ronald Reagan politically, all I will say is that nobody gets to the top without doing a few favors. But getting back to his book, formerly represented by MCA, Jones like Duke Ellington and Count Bassey had left the agency in 1939 after Willard Alexander, a top MCA agent, had defected to the William Morris Agency. Jones told Maury that MCA controlled most of the big name bands in America and Canada, and at least 75% of the entire band booking business. How has MCA become so successful, Maury asked. Well, they've devised a system of rotating bands in all of the places they play, Jones replied. The system's so perfect that without the MCA contract, a band leader can't make enough bookings to make a living, and the clubs can't get enough bands unless they sign contracts with MCA. This system that Julius Caesar Stein created is the reason that bands go on tour to this day. Before this, they all had been playing at one location for months at a time. On special segment tonight, the new payola, a sour note that is tainting the rock music business once again. It was back in the 1950s that payola became a way of life in this industry, record companies and promoters paying off disc jockeys to plug new releases and to boost sales. Today, the practice appears to be back with a group of independent promoters playing a major role, and federal authorities are investigating a possible mafia connection. NBC's investigative reporter Brian Ross has additional details. This block on First Avenue on the Lower East Side of New York is a stronghold of the Gambino Mafia family. According to the FBI and New York City Police, the Mafia capo who runs things on this block and in places far from this block is Joseph Armone, the man with the glasses, a convicted dealer who on most days can be found conducting mob business at a back table in this pastry shop. For months now, the activities of Armone and others have been watched closely by the FBI and police as far away as Los Angeles as part of an investigation of corrupt practices in the rock music business and what appears to be the re-emergence of payola at rock music radio stations. This was the Waldorf Astoria last month at a black tie celebrity dinner to honor some of the early stars of rock and roll. And among the guests, two of the most powerful and feared men in the rock music business. Joseph Isgro, who authorities say has described Mafia Capo Armone as his partner, and Isgro's close associate, Fred DiCipio, who rarely does business without his associate, Mike, by his side. DiCipio and Isgro, each with his own company, are top men in what is called the network. About 30 men, many at this dinner, all known as independent record promoters, who industry executives say are getting millions of dollars a year from record companies to make sure that certain new songs become hits on certain rock music radio stations. South Florida's hit music station. 
Don Cox of Miami, one of the top disc jockeys in the country, says some promoters will do almost anything to get their records played and earn their big fees from the record companies. Well, do you know how much money you make on having a hit record in this country? Cox, who's had a drug problem, says he's had to turn away promoters who have offered him cash, cane. Here, take this ounce and go on home. Okay. Couple thousand dollars. Here, you go. Here, you go. Take you. You know, we can get more. You take this, and I'll give you a call Tuesday. And what happens Tuesday? They call you and go. How was that? By the way, I got this record. I want you to hear. Now, if you take it, you got to answer the phone. But they cozy up and they corrupt. <laughs> Sir John. Cox on the radio. Cox says at his station, the music staff picks which records to play based on the music. Miami think those fun. But disc jockeys and program directors elsewhere, who said they were afraid to go on camera, tell the same story Cox does about payoffs of cash, cars, expensive watches, drugs, and nights with women sent over by the promoters. Another side of the payola scandal, according to industry executives, is suspected fraud involving the weekly Top 40 Hits charts, which determine more than anything what's played on the radio in this country. Okay, what, what was number um, 14? This chart, published by the trade newspaper Radio and Record, is based on calls from 250 leading rock radio stations, reporting what songs they're playing. Authoritative industry sources say independent promoters have been getting certain radio stations to make phony reports, getting records not doing so well, not even getting played, getting those records on the top 40 chart. It's, it's a serious thing. Ken Barnes, the paper's editor, says about 20 radio stations were put on notice for making suspected phony reports, and two have been referred to federal authorities. We're a trade paper. We can't be a cop. We can't really police what goes on at radio stations. By industry estimates, DeCipio, on the East Coast, is sometimes paid as much as $150,000 by a record company for handling just one record. DeCipio would not talk to NBC News for this story. And on the West Coast, Isgro has become one of the wealthiest men in the music business, driving around in his Rolls Royce, always accompanied by at least one bodyguard. Isgro would not talk to NBC News for this story. Isgro, shown here with a record company executive, is well known in the music business, and so is his bodyguard. But of 10 record company presidents contacted by NBC News, including the heads of such major labels as CBS, Warners, RCA, MCA, None would agree to talk on camera about Isgro or Decipio or the network of independent promoters, some saying they feared repercussions. Off camera, one company president said, you just can't be in business without them. A second company president said, it's obvious what's going on. According to figures provided to NBC News by industry sources, record companies pay independent promoters, many with mafia connections, almost $80 million a year. $80 million. And with this has come a climate of fear in the rock music business. Jay McDaniel says he was threatened by a big promoter when he tried to start a record promotion business, saying publicly he wasn't going to use payola. Were there threats of violence against you? Yes. What yes. was said to you? It, it basically uh, came out that, that I could have my face rearranged. Just how important the rock music business is to the mafia became clear last month at this New York City hotel. Joseph Armone, the man from the pastry shop, arranged an unusual meeting with the top three men in the Gambino Mafia family, including the Gambino family boss, John Gotti, in the view of the FBI, a mob summit meeting. 
Also observed here, Joseph Isgro, who authorities say meets frequently with Armon and other gangsters. And Fred DeCipio, who according to his lawyer, has never met Gotti, has met Armon only twice, and has no business relationship with mobsters. One hour after meeting top people in the American Mafia, Isgro and DeCipio were at the Waldorf, taking their places among the top people in the American music business. Brian Ross, NBC News, New York. Now, there are oftentimes a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to payola. You can pay to have a radio station play your song. They just have to disclose that they were paid to do it. Now, obviously, in the music business, everyone likes to act like they have a 100% organic come up, like all their success just came out of nowhere. But in reality, if you know how this business works, you know that it's a bunch of people fighting over the exact same listeners. If we are to believe what industry insiders have been saying, payola never went away. And given the fact that 2,500 text messages leaked to Rolling Stone in 2020 seemed to show that radio station promoters were actively stuffing playlists with the same songs, going as far as to play the same thing on repeat every 15 minutes to reach chart goals. And then the text later showed that once a song hit a chart position goal, they would swap it out for another song. Not surprising if you ask me. Dare I say it, but it's almost like the charts aren't an accurate reflection of what people are choosing to listen to. It almost seems like a closed system of power where only certain people are allowed to cheat. Notice how when an Indian rapper buys views to break the world record on YouTube, he gets stripped of his title and they change the rules, but when Taylor Swift does it, it's completely okay. Notice how when Jay-Z tries to create an artist-owned platform to challenge Spotify, when he fakes a world record, his company gets investigated for data fraud. But when record companies partnered with YouTube launched Vivo in 2009, Vivo magically becomes the number one most viewed channel on YouTube, with Lady Gaga's Just Dance magically getting 90 million views in 24 hours at a time when most of the world didn't even have smartphones. Actually, if you're paying attention to this chart here, supposedly this video was uploaded in June. Notice that it gets zero views that entire time, and then the day before Vivo launches, it gets 90 million views in a day. Vivo hadn't even gone live yet. The same pattern of behavior can be found in a number of different videos. And I just want to point out that if this video's views were real, this means that it would have literally been a world record all the way until 2020. You know, just when there's little contests and this is number one and this one wins um, this and this is the band of the year and the album of the year, like says who and why is it a contest? So check this out. Do you mind if I explain it? Please do. Okay. The conversation came up with about the actual album. Like, um, Warner Brothers was interested if we wanted to bundle it, which is when you include the record like with a ticket, right? And a lot of people have been doing it, whether you buy a t-shirt and you get a record, and it's a digital download link. Um, and I was like, well, how does that work? And I'm like, well, you would get $5 from each ticket back to Warner Brothers, and then you would get a record sale. And I was like, that doesn't make that doesn't make any sense to to me and to Dan. And they're like, yeah, and I, well, you would you it's the only way you're gonna get a number one record. So if you want a number one record, you gotta do that. And I was like, well I was like, well, it's one to one, like we get five bucks back and then we get a royalty and we get a ticket sale. And like, no, you don't get a royalty and you only get a tick you only get an album sale count if they click the link. And they have like we have a fifty percent click through. So in other words, we would pay $10 per sale on Nielsen SoundScan by giving the money back that we've sold on tickets uh, to Warner Brothers, to our record label. I was like, that, that. At this point- That is a crazy deal. Check it out, we've sold 250,000 tickets on this tour. So we would give back 
1.25 million. Our record advance for this record was less than that. So that so it, I was like, if Dan and I were just on our own record label, we could give ourselves five dollars per ticket, and count, and we just keep the, we just take the money from the right hand to the left hand, give you a link, and if you counted it, we get the sale, we keep the money. That's basically what was going on. Now, what never ceases to amaze me is how people can take an incredibly subjective medium like art and then state that the one that did the most in sales of all things is the objective best. As if sales numbers are anything but a vanity metric, that's not profit. Like, we know for a fact that money laundering takes place in this industry, just like every artistic medium. This is like saying that the best piece of digital art in human existence is this one NFT, because one dude bought it from himself. And my point in bringing this up is that there's a story behind this. But to understand how we got to this point today, you need to understand that the Billboard charts used to be based off of jukebox play data as well as data collected from record store owners. But can you guess who had a huge hand in jukeboxes? They were all cash payments that could be placed on every corner, an ideal vehicle at the time to launder money. Now, out of the four big manufacturing companies for jukeboxes in America, Rockola was founded by businessman David Cullen Rockola, a mob-connected businessman who was later charged with corruption in 1929. AMI was run by Jake Guzik's son-in-law, Frank Garnett. That was until 1949 when it was taken over by the other infamous mobster, Sam Jean Cana. Many jukebox manufacturers didn't sell to bars and clubs directly. They were sold instead to regional distribution entities. And these distribution entities would sell to operators of jukebox routes. These operators would collect the cash, they would supply the records for the machines, and they would be responsible for the repairs and needed maintenance. The mafia focused its attention at the distribution level. This gave them control over the machines where the cash was picked up, and it also gave them control over what records went inside the jukeboxes. As the 1950s would pass, various mobsters built their empires on jukeboxes. With the Chicago outfit controlling 100,000 of the nation's 575,000 jukeboxes. As a result, this would lead to a situation sort of reminiscent to what we know today as an industry plant. If you recall, the charts were originally based on jukebox data. This now meant that all they had to do was put a new artist's records inside their machines, then simply misreport the amount of plays in the machines to instantly send a new artist to the top of the charts for as long as they wanted. Coincidentally, or perhaps a part of a grander conspiracy, during the 1950s, all of the radio stations across the nation began focusing their programming to the best music, the hits, with most major radio stations adopting the Top 40 format. As author Gus Russo stated in his book, The Super Mob, it was Stein who encouraged fellow Lawndale entrepreneur William Paley to boost his new network, the Columbia Broadcasting System, by putting Stein's music acts on air, live, turning the rigged top 40 into a national phenomenon. Now, on a bit of a side note, regarding this statement from Russo, I'm not entirely sure where he got this bit of info. Other books I've found seem to suggest the same thing, but other sources I've found list Todd Storrs, a radio DJ from Nebraska, as the originator. Just thought I should clarify that. Continuing on. Now, despite jukeboxes falling out of favor, that didn't mean the mob couldn't still manipulate the charts. All it really took back in the day was paying off a record store owner. To quote the New York Times, Until 1991, the pop music charts were notoriously unreliable. Paying off record store employees with free albums, concert tickets, and even vacations and washing machines 
was the standard music business method of manipulating record sales figures. Even the Billboard magazine charts, considered the most prestigious in the business, were compiled from store managers' oral reports, which were inaccurate to begin with and easily swayed. As a result, this led to the introduction of the SoundScan system in 1991, which would only tally record store sales after a store clerk scanned the barcode at checkout for an album. And after that, the music industry cleaned up its act and nobody ever cheated again. Just kidding. Perhaps the funniest part about the SoundScan system was that data reported often had large discrepancies from the platinum certifications companies claimed. For instance, Michael Jackson's album History, when it was first released, it had been claimed five times platinum. But since each album included two CDs, each unit counted for two. Yet despite this, SoundScan only reported 1.3 million sold. These certifications were based on the amount of CDs that were shipped, not actually sold in stores, meaning that a record company could just ship a bunch of boxes to a store and that would count as a platinum record. And then after a period of time, the retailer could just return the boxes for a credit. This meant that they could make it however many times platinum they wanted. As one article from the New York Daily News put it, the inflation of history is far from an isolated case. Often when an album by a major artist begins to slip down the charts, companies slap a gold or platinum symbol as a cover. In just the last few weeks, Warner Brothers had the Rod Stewart album, Spanner in the Works, certified gold as it plunged near the bottom of the top 200. In fact, the album has only sold 211,000 copies so far, according to SoundScan. Likewise, Columbia recently planted a platinum sticker on the Soul Asylum record, which has sold 574,000 to date. While Polygram stuck a 1 million unit insignia on Bon Jovi's These Days, even though the album only sold 357,000 units to date. Such discrepancies put Billboard in an odd position. As a trade publication, the magazine is obliged to print RIAA certifications, which often clashes with the far more accurate sound scan data. As a result, Ellis says, it's time for the industry to think about the value of those RIAA shipment figures. Now look, I could dedicate an entire episode to explaining how artists game the charts, but for the sake of not getting too off track with this video, I want to just go over a few for now. For instance, after SoundScan's introduction, record labels began holding back singles, then juicing the charts by building up radio play first. Additionally, there are stories of sweetheart deals being arranged with retailers, where they would send a bunch of discounted copies to their store, only for someone to come in that day and then just clear them all off the shelf. And then there's stories of people being paid off to run the same thing through the scanner over and over again. And there's other stories of barcodes being switched around. So then they could just redirect the sales from another popular track all into one. And lastly, the main method of gaming SoundScan back in the day was to send a bunch of copies to independent retailers. Here, each copy would be worth three on the charts. The idea here was to give a bunch of extra weight to independent retailers at the time because the SoundScan system hadn't rolled out across every single store yet. Then found in the documents of the Elliott Spitzer Payola investigation, the documents accused Sony of keeping people on payroll to basically call in to the radio stations and make fake song requests. Then also found in these documents, it's alleged that radio stations have participated in selling spin packages. This one's really interesting. I always wondered why radio stations sometimes just play like a whole bunch of songs in quick succession during commercial break, but they'll only play like snippets and then they'll say like, you're listening to Pay 0104 or something. Now, I don't know if this is still true today, but it turns out the reason they were doing this is because airplay monitoring companies detect that the song is being played on the radio, even if it's just for a short time, and then they count that towards the charts. While you may have heard that people lie and numbers don't, just know that sometimes we don't get the full story behind those numbers.
Now, before we get to this next entanglement, I need to tie up the stories with Bob Keane and Larry Nunes. Then we'll also get back to the death clause. Bob had claimed he'd partnered with Nunes in 1964 when he needed money, and he wrote in his autobiography, I had wondered if I had made a deal with the devil. I had heard that Larry had a reputation for being associated with the mob, and as it turned out three years later, a relationship ended in deception, dishonesty, and murder. I consider myself to be very lucky to have come out of that relationship with Nunes in one piece, virtually unscathed. After Fuller's passing in 1967, Delphi had been dissolved and Bob Keane had moved on. But it's worth noting just how bad Keane had gotten burned within his relationship with not just Nunes, but also his previous financier. Before Delphi existed, there was a company called Keen Records, spelt K-E-E-N. The story behind this goes, Bob Keen was playing clarinet in several bars and clubs around Los Angeles, and one evening he met businessman John Simus, who persuaded Bob to set up a record label with him. Under this position, Keen would go on to manage Sam Cooke for three years, who, I should add, he also passed away under disputed circumstances as well. But soon after working with Keen, Sam Cooke came out with a record that included Summertime, and on the other side, it had You Send Me. You Send Me ended up reaching the number one on the charts after it took off in 1957. At this point, despite Keen Records having earned over one million from sales from You Send Me, Bob apparently only had an oral contract with Simus. Eventually, Keen was cut out of the picture and he was duped and received nothing and was left out in the dust. Hereafter, Keen would go on to found Delphi. Keen basically had an open door policy for musicians to audition for him. One of the more known was Richie Valens, who after seeing short-lived success, passed away along with Buddy Holly and J.P. Richardson and pilot Roger Peterson for reasons unknown in a plane crash after failing a takeoff. Now that being said, just because the reasons were undetermined, it's worth mentioning that the weather conditions were incredibly poor, and the pilot wasn't even made aware of the weather that they were flying into. On top of that, the pilot was 21 years old, was not instrument rated, and should not have been flying in a snowstorm. Now, as a result, Keen ended up owning Valen's legacy via his masters, and over the course of the next half decade with Noons, he built up a pretty sizable catalog, including Chan Romero, Little Caesar and the Romans, Ron Holden, Johnny Crawford, Brenda Holloway, some of the first records from Frank Zappa, and The Surfaris. But that being said, Bob Keen basically had his entire catalog stolen out from under him. As he wrote in his autobiography, I was trying to resolve the dissolution of Stereo Fi, and towards the end of 1970, I finally got an agreement with Larry Nunes as to who was going to get what from the company assets. I was to receive all master recordings, including my Delphi tapes, and he got 600 copyrights in the publishing division. I signed the papers and went over to the local storage facility to pick up my property. There was nothing there. Missing, presumed stolen. I don't know who got the recording equipment, but it seems that the now defunct MGM Records was figured in the deal somewhere. MCA was even selling bootleg Richie Valens albums. Keen's story seems to be corroborated by the fact that several 45s turned up in 1973 from MGM Records. However, afterwards, Keen moved on from the music business after losing basically his entire career. Now with Keen's story out of the way, let's discuss Mr. Larry Nunes. He was what's known as a rack jobber. That would be a person who maintains a distribution network of retail space at various mom and pop shops. The purpose of this kind of distributor would be to sell cutouts and overstocks for record companies, usually titles that didn't sell well or that they had overstock of that could be sold off for pennies on the dollar. While this might seem like honest work, this job was also a front for other illegal activity. For one, cutout deals allowed record labels to bypass the artist and not pay them any royalties. 
And the second use case for illegal activity would be to sell counterfeit records as well, under the cover of a cutout. As the LA Times once reported, critics of these sell-off practices have been complaining for years that record companies use the cutout and overstock designations arbitrarily to raise quick cash at the expense of the artists. They say that cutouts and overstocks often are routinely sold, bartered, or given away by the record companies to cutout distributors, favored retail accounts, and even company employees. In most cases, the artist receives no royalties. What's more, the Recording Industry Association of America, a trade group of the major record companies, contends that mass sell-offs create an atmosphere conducive to counterfeiting by providing illegal duplicators with a cover to produce large quantities of the recordings that have been sold by manufacturers as cutouts and overstocks. But in the case of Larry Nunes, what you need to know is that he was a cutout distributor who worked with two companies. One was MCA, and the other one was Roulette Records. If you recall that mysterious phone call in the middle of the night, where the road manager claimed that Bobby was going to see a girl named Melody? Larry Nunes employed Melody, and by all accounts, Melody was a lady of the night. My relationship with Bobby primarily was to watch him and talk to him. I was like the go-between to talk to Bobby and see what was on his mind, what bothered him and stuff like that. While Melody later claimed that Nunes was not mobbed up, it's also worth pointing out that Larry Nunes had signed an exclusive distribution deal with Roulette Records. That distribution deal was for the Bobby Fuller 4's last single, The Magic Touch. So following the money here, it takes us back to Roulette Records, owned by a man by the name of Morris Levy. In a series of reports on this program, NBC investigative reporter Brian Ross has detailed several links between the mob and the songs that make the charts. And tonight, Ross has more. This is the man federal authorities describe as the godfather of the American music business, Morris Levy, in the custody of FBI agents after his arrest just after seven this morning at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Boston. Levy, the president of Roulette Record, is little known outside the music business, but federal authorities say Levy is as powerful as any big record company president, using his ties with organized crime to control record companies, record stores, and big-name performers. Also arrested along with Levy this morning were 21 others in Florida, New York, and New Jersey. Indicted by a federal grand jury in Newark on racketeering and extortion charges. Accused of using violence to get their way in the gambling business, the narcotics business, and the music business. United States Attorney Thomas Grealish. A Mac uh, 11 machine gun with a silencer uh, is not used for uh, target shooting. The New Jersey mob investigation began more than three years ago with a man identified by federal and state authorities as a mafia boss, Gaetano Vastola, known on the streets of New Jersey and in the recording studios of Hollywood as Corky. By following Vastola and tapping his phone, federal agents were led to Morris Levy, to New York talent agencies, and finally to Hollywood to the corporate headquarters of the huge entertainment conglomerate MCA and what authorities describe as some suspicious business deals at MCA Records. The president of MCA Records, Irving Azoff, said earlier this year that his company was the victim of the mob and that MCA had done nothing wrong. But somehow, according to federal authorities, millions of MCA Records by Neil Diamond, Elton John, and the rock group The Who and others ended up in the hands of Mob Front Record Company, which were going to sell the records at huge profits to record stores. The mob showed up. The enforcers came down. 
Dennis Eisman is the lawyer for a man who ran one of the mob front companies and is now a protected federal witness in the case. Eisman says his client was beaten up by the mob when he refused to pay for a large shipment of MCA records. I think it was uh, to, to show him that if he didn't pay, he was going to get hurt, maybe hurt worse. I'm not sure if they intended to break his jaw and fracture some bones in his face. I think it was just, uh, just to show him that he couldn't uh, not pay. And there has been other violence in the case. Earlier this year, a New York City policeman was murdered while following one of the men involved in the MCA deal, who is expected to be indicted soon by another grand jury. This indictment is the work of one of five grand juries now investigating organized crime in the music business. Federal sources say a grand jury in Los Angeles is investigating the role of top MCA executives in all this. Other grand juries in Los Angeles, Cleveland, Philadelphia, and New York are investigating allegations of payola, the use of cash, cocaine, prostitutes, and some mob-controlled promoters to get songs played on the radio. Law enforcement authorities say what's at stake in all these investigations is the mob stronghold in a business that earns $4 billion a year. Brian Ross, NBC News, Newark, New Jersey. It goes without saying that the circumstances surrounding Bobby Fuller's passing are very questionable. But it's worth pointing out that had things gone a bit differently with Bobby Fuller's mother not keeping an eye out that entire day, then it would be much harder to argue the mysterious circumstances surrounding his death. This entire situation, given the facts available, reeks of a botched contrived accident. I think some people think that the whole Jeffrey Epstein suicided thing is just some one-off meme. But I should let you know that this is a very real tactic used by organizations like the CIA to take out targets under secretive conditions. They quite literally wrote the book on this. For secret hits, either simple or chase, the contrived accident is the most effective technique. When successfully executed, it causes little excitement and is only casually investigated. On that note, when you understand the full potential of something like a contrived accident, it's very difficult not to be a conspiracy theorist in the music industry, especially given the fact that historically this industry has had ties to organized crime since the very beginning. And as long as humans are corrupt, I would say that those people will continue to rise to the top in those businesses, whether it be the same set of powers that be or another. When a contrived accident is orchestrated correctly, it can be difficult for the general public to understand what they're looking at as a hit. Oftentimes, people won't think twice to question someone who's labeled a junkie or depressed. But you should know that staging of these particular incidents is definitely a real thing that goes on. But don't take my word for it, the CIA will tell you themselves. An overdose of administered as a sedative will cause death without disturbance and is difficult to detect. The size of the dose will depend upon whether the subject has been using regularly. If not, two grains will suffice. Man, I love your show. I like you. what you're doing. Thank really. you. Right? That's Thank why I'm God. here. Fresh out of jail, I'll come check you out, right? Right. Why the bulletproof vest? Oh, it's not. Oh, no. That's just. It's your know, style. It, You've been it, in the no, can no, no, for a no, while. No, 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 no. That's what all the talk show hosts so are look, wearing. This is a new thing, right? Yeah. See, if somebody's going to do something about it, see. Right. Technology is so high, right? Right. So if you shoot somebody, you go to jail forever. So the kids, you don't want to go to jail forever, right? right? So they got this new thing out that people sell them all the time. They got this stuff to call, they get blood from somebody with AIDS, 
Yeah. And then it shoots you with it. Oh, so well, that seems bad. Happen, that's yeah. a slow death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> easy thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Now, as you can imagine, Suge Knight's statement here obviously put him at the center of a conspiracy surrounding ECE. While some people question the possibility of such a plot, others have pointed out that the rate at which Eze went from being diagnosed to passing away was incredibly quickly. Now, while various people have shared their opinions throughout the years regarding that conspiracy, what's incredibly interesting about Suge Knight's statement is that it shows a familiarity with the contrived accident. So with you getting a broader context in the music industry as well as some of its history, it should now be brutally apparent to you how little it has to do with music at all and how much it actually has to do with crime. Within the next installment of the series, we are going to be diving in further into the contrived accident and various other conspiracies that come from the music industry. But before we go, I want to ask you, the audience, a question. What contributes to the data that we saw at the start of this episode? Is it really just substance and mental illness that contributes to having your life shortened by up to 25 years? It's not like musicians are unique in this problem at all. Substance and mental illness are prevalent in all walks of life, whether you're famous, poor, whatever. Clearly this data shows us that something is seriously wrong with this industry. And before we end this episode, I want to leave you with a clip from NPR discussing Mexico's music industry. I want you to pay attention to how different the discussion is over in Mexico from the year before so my question is are these musicians falling into what's a bigger pattern or do you think there's something unique about the deaths of these musicians which may be attached to these cartels the same reason that other people are being killed in mexico there are entanglements mm. uh and personal and, entanglements sure a lot of personal entanglements uh narcotraficantes uh are often funding bands according to anybody in the music industry who you talk to uh in order in other words actually giving the seed money for a band to get started to get publicity to get a record cut um and in return for that are frequently then expecting a cut of the money mm. well money when it's changing hands, often can lead to misunderstandings uh, and out-and-out uh, deceptions. And the way that drug cartels deal with those sorts of problems is not by filing lawsuits, it's by killing people. Then uh, there's also romantic entanglements. The closer uh, a band is with that world, the more likely uh, that a band member might, say, catch the eye of a powerful drug lord's girlfriend or wife or daughter. And all of these sorts of entanglements can create you know, very big problems. Now, it goes without saying that the cartel presence in Mexico is far more pronounced. But it's honestly foolish to think that organized crime doesn't exist in every single society, and it's not something that really ever goes away. They say the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. This is barely sociable. Have a